Warning, today's story contains strong language, strong sexual content, and prostitution, and also time travel, so not necessarily in that order. Escape Pod 61 July 6, 2006 Today's story, I look forward to remembering you, by Merle Lafferty. Hello, and welcome again to Escape Pod. I'm Steve Ely. Hi, Duncan. This intro is, unfortunately, a memorial. Many of you have already heard that Jim Bain died last week, on June 28th. He had suffered a stroke a couple of weeks previously, and never recovered. The details are all online for anyone who wants to look for them, and there are some moving and entertaining eulogies to him from David Drake and John Ringo, which I'll link to. Mr. Bain, I've never met him personally, so I don't feel I can call him Jim. Anyway, Mr. Bain left a very broad swath across science fiction over several decades. He started at Ace Books, then edited Galaxy and If magazines, and then started the science fiction line at Tor. When he founded his own publishing line, Bain Books, in 1983, he worked on the very simple principle that if he found a niche that he liked, and developed it fully to his liking, audiences would follow. And they did. I have to be honest here. I've never read that many Bain books. The military SF flavor just doesn't do a whole lot for me although I give it a lot of credit for bringing in new readers and for putting entertainment first. But even if I don't dig the books, I have huge respect for Bain for being the one publisher to prove that free sharing of your content can be economically successful, and to stand by it. For several years now, the majority of Bain books have been available online by cheap subscription, or for free and unencrypted format. They started it to test the conventional wisdom that making books easily available online would hurt sales of the actual books. They found instead that it increased sales. Bain's experiments set precedents for the Creative Commons movement and for other electronic publishers, and it was a major factor in convincing me that giving away audio fiction could be self-sustaining. So, literary tastes aside, I owe him a debt for being one of the boldest innovators in the genre. If Jim Bain was an influence in your life and you'd like to give back, those closest to him suggest purchasing copies of The World Turned Upside Down, an anthology edited by Jim Bain, David Drake, and Eric Flint with the classic SF stories that influenced them most in their childhoods, and donating it to a library or a teenager of your acquaintance. And that brings us to today's story, a fun piece that's also about influencing one's youth. Sort of. We present... I look forward to remembering you by Mer Lafferty. Mer is a good friend of mine, which is why I don't call her Ms. Lafferty. She's the host of two very popular podcasts, Geek Foo Action Grip and I Should Be Writing, and she lives in North Carolina with her husband, Jim Van Verth of the Vintage Gamer Podcast. She has a book out called Tricks of the Podcasting Masters. She's a successful RPG and magazine writer, and if that's not enough, she will soon be co-editing yet another podcast, a horror magazine called Pseudopod that'll be a sister podcast to Escape Pod. More on that very shortly. And something a little different this time. The story is read for us by three, count them, three narrators. We have my longtime friend and writing group buddy, Daisy Ottman, and my longtime friend and spouse, Anna Ely, and finally, my longtime friend, uh, me. So Sherman, set the Wayback Machine for love. It's story time.
I Look Forward to Remembering You, by Mer Lafferty. The time whore, time escort, he'd insisted, stood in front of Susan Apple while she surveyed his virtues and flaws. She studied the ridges of his abdominals and the curve of his buttocks. He was thin and wiry, with tight muscles creating a compact frame devoid of any unnecessary bulk. The young man looked to be about twenty, with firm, pale skin. Susan looked him over for a good five minutes, instructed him to turn a couple of times, and finally to remove his boxer shorts. She smiled at last and gave a satisfied little sigh. He was just as she'd ordered. Without raising her eyes to his face, she asked, "'So when do we begin?' "'We just have some paperwork to go over,' he said. He bent over to pick up his bathrobe, and Susan stared as his muscles flexed. Kevin slipped his robe on with the slow grace of someone who was unashamed of his nakedness. "'Once we take care of that, I'll go back to headquarters and take my trip back to 1992, find your younger self, and seduce her.' "'Excellent, Kevin,' she said. She imagined saying his name after a night of sweaty sex, and it felt wrong.' Kevin, that won't work for me. I'd rather have you be Paul, she said. He nodded. I'll introduce myself to you as Paul, then. He paused. As long as there's no one in your past called Paul, that might cause confusion for your younger self. She kept her face straight. No one. Kevin picked up his briefcase that he'd left by the door with his folded khakis and sweater. We need to go over the paperwork before you sign, Miss Apple. He walked to Susan's heavy oak dining room table and pulled a chair out for her. Susan gripped the sides of her chair and pulled herself to her feet. Her bad knee, injured twenty years ago in China, wobbled and threatened to give out. She hissed, and it seemed to rethink its direction. She silently cursed her vanity that caused her to leave her cane in the other room. He was a whore. She didn't need to impress him. And anyway, she wouldn't be sleeping with him in her current state. She shuffled over to the table and took the proffered chair with a smile of thanks. Up close, he smelled of musk. Kevin looked quite businesslike and official in his bathrobe, complete with a monogrammed logo, T-E-I, for Time Escorts Incorporated. He put his briefcase on the table and leaned over her shoulder. His scent was more pervasive, and heat drifted off his skin as he slid a paper in front of her, brushing her arm. Susan swallowed. I've been sterilized by both a vasectomy and a nanovas. I'm tested for disease after every mission. You can see the documentation here. He pointed at the lines on the paper, which repeated his statements in more businesslike terms. She initialed the bottom of the page. Here are our guarantees, he said, whisking the paper away and producing another one. They protect you from time paradox, possible mental anguish, and a full money back and experience deleting guarantee. That was what finally made me decide to do this, Susan admitted. She felt heat rise to her wrinkled cheeks for the first time that day. Kevin smiled and she felt hotter. That's what most of our clients say. We offer the best guarantee in the business. If you experience mental anguish, disease, family grief, physical harm, or death due to the service, the experience will be erased and your money returned to you, he said. Susan stared at the legal jargon on the page and couldn't make heads or tails of it. By signing this, however, you do acknowledge that there may be unavoidable changes to your current way of life, Kevin continued. While we do cover drastic changes in the life path, we do not cover minor ones. 
You could wake up tomorrow wearing a different color of nightgown or be close friends with someone you currently hate. You will remember both paths of your lives, although the previous path, your current path, that is, will fade over time. Susan put up her hand. Wait just a minute. Are you saying that I could wake up tomorrow a different person? Kevin put a diagram in front of her. Everything we do in life affects everything else. Your cat knocks your keys off the table and you take five minutes to find them. You leave later than you intended and are not there when a bus driver loses control and kills three pedestrians. That tiny detail saved your life and you didn't even know it. We do everything in our power, with your help, to schedule the sexual encounter during a time in your life when it will affect the fewest number of outside events. But we can't guarantee small changes won't happen. Not to mention how losing your virginity at 19 will change your life and make you take a different path than you're currently on. Susan made a face. This wasn't sounding as good as before. What if I don't like the changes? Can I erase the encounter then? Of course, the escort said, smiling a charming grin. One of his front teeth was crooked. Susan felt a thrill of both excitement and anxiety. This guy was good. He knew his stuff. We can modify the time continuum a second time if you're not satisfied with the outcome. These modifications do come with an additional fee, however. He handed her a rate card. Susan's eyes widened. She could have the encounter, then have it erased for double. That was unexpected. She looked into the fireplace across the room, and her eyes drifted to the mantel. Pictures of her aiding children in Africa, meeting the U.N. secretary to receive a humanitarian award, going walkabout in Australia, hiking in the Rockies. She was alone or with friends, never with a lover. She'd experienced nearly everything in life. Nearly. Fine. Where do I sign? Kevin had promised to leave for 1992 that night at 6 o'clock. Susan had an early dinner of soup and soft bread. She could no longer chew the crunchy loaves she'd loved in her youth and settled in front of the fire with a glass of wine. The memory should start flowing in around 6.30, and by tomorrow morning she would remember everything about her sexual encounter with the handsome Paul that she'd had when she was 19, plus anything that had changed due to the encounter. She sipped the wine and leaned back. Images, memories, and smells began flowing to her, feeling recent as her mind processed the new memories. A bad day in college. She had been dumped by Bruce, her boyfriend who was turned off by her intelligence and her social awkwardness. He'd been a bad kisser, she told herself, crying as she walked across the campus to her dorm. Then she had met a kind man, someone named Paul, who showed his concern for her by slowly and deliciously initiating her into the glories of the flesh. Kevin thought that the young Susan wasn't that bad-looking. He sat on the steps of the Foreign Languages building and waited for her to get closer. She held herself awkwardly, hunching over and hiding her form. She hadn't yet achieved the sharp, intelligent confidence that the elderly Susan had. Her intelligence was a hindrance to her, something that made others dislike and mistrust her. He had read Susan's account of her college years thoroughly and had run her journals through their personality computer. He knew just how to approach the young woman to begin the encounter. His employers had developed the personality matrix software. Even if people wanted to change their past to include more and better sexual encounters, their selves in the past wouldn't know what was coming. The encounter could fail at a costly loss for the company, 
Traveling through time was not cheap, and they couldn't afford many refunds, or could even be construed as harassment or rape. Kevin did not know of any circumstances where this had happened, but the trainers at time escorts heavily emphasized the psychology of seduction to fit the person. She was crying, just as he'd expected. He took a deep breath. The first meeting was the hardest, and fell into step beside her as she scuttled past. He was so intent on catching up with her that he didn't see the woman coming the other way. They brushed shoulders and she stumbled. Kevin excused himself quickly and fell into step beside the sobbing woman. Hey, are you okay? he asked, putting concern into his voice. She sniffled and looked up at him. What? Oh, I'm fine, yes, thank you, yes. He smiled and saw her mouth hang open a moment. You don't look fine to me. Fine people don't take a stroll on campus while crying their eyes out. What happened? Her lower lip trembled and more tears spilled over her cheeks as she looked away. Is it a guy? he asked. She nodded. Do you want to get some coffee and talk about it? I'm a good listener, he said. My treat. She looked at him for a moment, and he saw her calculating the safety involved. This is it. Do I know you? she asked. I've seen you in my Econ 10 class. I usually sit in the back, he said. He'd looked for the biggest class on her schedule, the easiest to get lost in. Most freshmen took that class. I'm Paul. He extended his hand. She took it, and he let his fingers trace across her palm lightly after they had shaken hands. Erica, she said. Asshole. Fucker. Shitface. Bastard. Mm, asshole. Susan ran through all of the swear words she knew, and when she was done, she repeated them. So she wasn't social enough, was she? She wasn't pretty enough, studied too much, partied too little, and wouldn't let him touch her there. Maybe I wouldn't let you touch me there because you kiss so badly that I'm afraid of what you might do elsewhere, she screamed at him before leaving. At least she got in the last word in. She stopped by her Japanese TA's office to check her midterm grade and then got plowed into by some schmo who said sorry before running after some girl. Yeah, always they're chasing someone else. Fuckers, all of them. She rubbed her shoulder and decided to go back to her dorm by way of the student union. Walking her usual way would have her following the jerk and his girlfriend, and she really didn't feel like putting someone else's problems on her shoulders. It was her night to feel sorry for herself, damn it, and she was going to treat herself to a donut or three. She trudged to the union, purchased her donut, and went to the TV lounge to see what was on the big screen. She stayed near the back, hoping no one would notice her blotchy face and her tear-streaked eyes. Susan, the voice said from behind her. She gasped sucked in a bit of donut, and went into a coughing fit. A hand thumped her on the back, and she was free of the offending pastry. She wheezed a bit and straightened up. Oh, man, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to startle you. It was Paul, her lab partner in geology. She avoided his blue eyes, as always, and looked directly at his slightly crooked teeth. That's okay. I just didn't hear you come up, she said, trying to regain her composure. Aware of her swollen eyes and crumbly mouth, she passed a hand down her face. Unfortunately, the hand had more sugar from the donut, and she just succeeded in getting more stuff on her face. Are you okay? You look, uh, upset, he said. Oh yeah, just had a bad night. Thanks. Just stuff, you know? She gestured vaguely with her donut, then dropped it in a wastebasket. 
she turned and grabbed for some napkins from the condiment table. Nonchalantly cleaning her hands and face, she attempted a smile at him. He still stared at her. So, uh, what are you up to tonight? she asked. I was supposed to meet the anime club in a basement room, but no one showed. Now I'm stuck with a bunch of tapes and some AV equipment. I just came up here to grab a Coke before having my own private viewing, he said, waving the bottle of Coke at her. Do you like anime? he asked. Well, I've never seen any, she said, hoping he couldn't hear her thundering heart. But I'm an international studies major and hope to study in Japan in a couple of semesters. Then you should watch some, he said. Come on. He walked off towards the stairs without looking behind him. Men, always expecting you to do what they say. She tried to think this with acidity, but it felt hollow. She nursed a crush on Paul all semester, but squashed it because of her relationship with Bruce. And hell, she knew she wasn't a catch. She followed. Kevin's voice caught in his throat. This wasn't Susan, and he didn't know where she was. If he had missed her, he had no idea where she would end up. He'd have to try her dorm. But there was the problem of this girl. She looked up at him with wet brown eyes, taking in the natural charm he had inadvertently oozed at her. Shit, I'm so going to lose my job for this, he thought. He checked his watch and gasped. Oh, crap. I'm sorry, Erica. I forgot I'm late for a study group. I'm so sorry to leave you like this. Can we get that coffee in an hour? I'll meet you at the Daily Grind. I'll buy you the biggest double chocolate mocha you can drink. She bought it. All right. Thanks, Paul. I really need someone to talk to now. Kevin dashed off toward Susan's dorm, pulling a mat from his pocket. Two episodes of Ranma One Half and Susan was hooked. Paul had insisted on watching in Japanese with subtitles, and she told him where the translation differed from what the characters really said. They sat next to each other on folding chairs, and every once in a while their knees touched. While changing tapes, Paul looked at her. So, why were you crying, really? I just got dumped, she said, looking at the floor. Ah, shit, I'm sorry. You were with that guy for, what, four months? Yes, how did you know? She looked up at him. Well, Paul focuses attention on the VCR. I was going to ask you out, but you came to lab all excited about this new guy you were dating, so it kind of stuck in my mind. Oh. So what happened between you guys? He hit a button and returned to his seat. I'm not enough of a party girl for him. Not pretty enough, not fun enough, not, you know, physical enough. She fiddled with the zipper on her jacket. Her ears were hot. Oh, so you were a smart girl who wouldn't put out, right? His voice was mocking. What's wrong with that? She asked. Nothing at all, just that he was a retard who didn't see what he had. Check this out. There's a new character in this one, he pointed to the TV. A guy who always gets lost. The opening credits came on, the chirpy Japanese theme song circling the confusion and excitement somewhere in Susan's middle. Susan didn't answer the phone at her dorm, and no one would let Kevin through the locked doors to get up to her room without an escort. Had elderly Susan said something about sexual assaults going up that year? He couldn't get his focus. Where else? Susan was smart. Libraries. She was upset. Coffee shops or a student union. She was heartbroken. Boyfriend's dorm? He had no idea. It was obvious his appearance had already changed something in the timeline. Susan was supposed to go from her boyfriend's dorm to her dorm, where she lived in a single room. 
Kevin was supposed to seduce her there with no interruptions. It was supposed to have been easy. Find the girl, console the girl, fuck the girl, get out. Easy money. He'd never messed up like this. With hope, he could still catch her. He checked his map again and went off at a run towards the library. Halfway through the second tape, Paul took Susan's hand. She didn't withdraw it, even though his palm was hot and sweaty. After putting in the third tape, Paul closed the door to the room and returned to sit with her. So, is it too soon to ask you out? he asked. His face was red. I mean, it's not too soon to me. I've been waiting for months, but soon after your breakup, I mean. She surprised herself by kissing him. He surprised her by sliding his arms around her middle and holding her tightly. His lips were soft and electrifying, nothing wet or insistent or Bruce-like about them. More surprising things happened, all of them quite good. The most surprising thing was that she initiated most of them. He let her lead, and she ended up on top of him, watching the animated heroine lose her ponytail during a battle scene. Kevin had no idea what to do if he found her. Losing his seductive nature and his frantic search, he interrupted several people in the library while looking for her. Inside the student union, he searched the top two floors and paused to rest on the way to the basement. What was he qualified to do if he lost this job? He had been trained in avoiding paradoxes, extreme time management, all the levels of seduction. Perhaps they would put him on a desk job. Less exciting, but at least he could still eat. Maybe he could find a wealthy older woman who wanted a boy toy. Heck, older Susan had seemed to like his looks. The thought repulsed him. He got up, determined to finish the job, and descended the stairs. Susan now, so he wouldn't have to do Susan later. They were experimenting again, this time letting Paul take a turn on top when the door opened. Susan gasped. Paul swore and rolled off of her. The lights were off, so there was only a silhouette of a man in the hallway. Whoops, the man said. Um, Susan? Fuck. Yeah, what? She said. Hey, it's Paul, you know, from Econ 10. I needed, uh, to borrow some notes, but crap. Never mind, sorry. The door closed. Who the hell? asked Paul. I have no idea, she said. Well, this isn't the most private place now, is it? He said, the still-running anime lighting up his wicked grin. She returned his smile. I have a single room. It has a door that locks. Kevin trudged out of the student union, head hanging. He could find no way to fix this now. He couldn't sneak back to the home office and use the machine without a superior's knowledge. The time travel machine was a complicated device that required seven people to operate, and there was no unofficial company business to be conducted with it. He was fired for sure, unless Susan didn't like the way this turned out, but she had seemed pretty damn happy when he'd walked in on them. Not paying attention to his direction, he heard someone yell, Paul! It took him a moment before Kevin remembered to turn. Susan? He passed right in front of the outside coffee bar. Erica sat at a table, waving at him. He studied her for a moment, then checked his watch. One hour until the device would call him home. He had time to kill. Might as well enjoy his job while he still had it. It was 7.30 when Susan gasped, realizing that the memories that were flooding into her mind had nothing to do with Kevin. Had she even met him? She had requested someone who would look like Paul, someone who took the name Paul, without ever remembering her old college crush. 
Tears sprang to her eyes as her new past wove itself in her mind's eye. Paul. Their time together in college. Their letters when she traveled the world, studying other cultures, and eventually getting work as a diplomat. She stood uncertainly. Was her knee stronger? She couldn't tell. The pictures on her mantle faded and changed. The picture of her shaking hands with Chen Chua-Sheng, the UN secretary, morphed into a picture of her and an older Paul in front of a temple in China. She smiled. He had studied Kung Fu during the months that she had served at the American embassy. The picture of her hiking in the Rockies didn't change at all, but she remembered that Paul had been the one behind the camera. Instead of aiding children in Africa, she was passing out food crates to earthquake survivors in Southeast Asia. And there was no walkabout picture at all. There was a statue of an open hand, an award for humanitarian aid that she and Paul had won. She smiled, tears streaming down her face. Her life was unchanged, only enriched by the man she'd chosen to spend it with. This was better than anything she could have expected. It took up to 12 hours for the current timeline to catch up to the restructured past, so she went to bed, looking forward to waking up beside her husband. The memories hit her before she even opened her eyes the next morning, causing her to cry out. The hostage situation ten years ago. Paul had been planning on leaving Indonesia with the other aid workers. She'd been in Australia on the walkabout she'd always wanted to experience, when the terrorists had grabbed him and twelve others. He'd been the first beheaded when the government hadn't complied with the demands. She wept. The pain that had dimmed in the past ten years suddenly new and fresh. She cried and screamed into her pillow until she fell into an exhausted sleep. She spent the afternoon flipping through photo albums and going through her house to find remnants of him. He had been a spearhead of humanitarian Internet news radio, and she discovered multiple CDs of his programs. She listened to several, laughing at the inside jokes he had inserted for her. That night, there was a knock at her door. Sniffling, she shuffled to the door and opened it. Damn, but Kevin looked like Paul. She wondered if she had chosen him because of this, but couldn't remember. He glanced at her face and looked down at the floor. Can I come in? She held the door open. This was all my fault. I I missed you and found another girl who looked like you who was also crying. And I guess I caused you to find that guy. You weren't going to die a virgin like you feared, but this is not what you paid for. My company is here to offer you a money-back guarantee and an experience erase free of charge. He looked as if he were going to cry. You were the guy who bumped into me before I went to the union, she said, her eyes widening. I was going to go back to my dorm before you ran into me. He nodded. I am so sorry. It looks like I really screwed up. She looked at the crumpled, moist tissue in her hand. Remembering what it was for, she dabbed her eyes again. We got married after college. Traveled the world together. He died ten years ago. Kevin stared at her, stricken. We can fix all of this, really, for free. Susan looked at the apartment that still seemed new to her, full of signs of a man she only held in memories. She focused on the throb within her chest, The ache that she remembered took two years to heal and still flared up on holidays and whenever she saw old anime. All she wanted was not to die a virgin. 
She hadn't asked for this. She went to an open photo album that focused on their work with inner-city children. Paul was hugging one of the many children that they had sponsored, a girl who had shown a gift for languages, and they'd padded her few scholarships so she could follow in Susan's footsteps in international studies. She pointed to the photo. What do you think will happen to her if Paul disappears from her life? Gunned down in a drive-by? Raped? Underappreciated in a minimum-wage job? There's no way of telling. She stared at the girl who grinned widely in the picture. Tasha still visited during some holidays, like most of the children they had helped out of bad situations. Having no children of their own, they had loved all they could of those who needed it. I can't do it, she said quietly. I can't remove him from their lives. I can't remove him from mine. She looked at Kevin's face. He was pale. Are you going to get in trouble for this? I, they didn't say. I had to come here and offer a refund and fix. Then, I I don't know, he admitted. I'm still so sorry. Don't be, she said. It was a good life. Not what I expected, but then life never is, is it? I'm surprised this doesn't happen more often. Butterfly wings causing hurricanes and all that. If you'd like, I will contact your employers and give you a recommendation. What I had with Paul was more fulfilling than a one-night stand ever could have been. Kevin sighed, visibly relieved. I can't tell you what that means to me. Thanks a lot. Is there anything I can do personally to make it up to you? Susan motioned for him to follow her to the kitchen. She took two beers from the fridge and handed one to him. I am curious. My college friend Erica told me that she, too, slept with a dark-haired, blue-eyed Paul the same night I did. We joked that we were Eskimo sisters, that my Paul had somehow made it into her bed after mine. But now, I wonder. Kevin smiled at last. Mrs. Apple, I never give private information about my clients. And that was our story. I speak from experience here. If you only take one thing away from this work of literature, remember the seductive power of Ronmo one-half. It's been a sparse week for feedback. People just didn't have a lot to say about last week's episode, good or bad, which surprised me a bit. We did, however, get this voicemail, which speaks volumes by itself. G'day, Steve. It's Ricky Buchanan here from Melbourne, Australia. I just listened to Creature for Hire, and I really loved the intro. The idea about comic books being modern myths is uh, a very interesting one, and I was sufficiently intrigued by the promo that I've now subscribed to the sci-fi show. So if I now have even less time to write in my journal, I know who to blame it on. It's all your fault. I've been listening to Escape Pod since, I think about the fourth episode. I can't remember if I've told you before. I've written to you a couple of times, but typing is very difficult for me. I have to use an on-screen keyboard because I just operate the computer with one finger on a trackpad. So talking is a lot easier. I, um, I've donated to Escape Pod a couple of times, I think, and it's, I recommend it to everyone that I know who enjoys science fiction but especially to people with disabilities like myself, which make reading difficult. This sort of 
display of fiction, uh, not display, this sort of way of, of getting science fiction out is just brilliant. I've got friends who are blind, friends who have dyslexia, or just friends who have uh, things like chronic fatigue syndrome, which makes it very difficult to concentrate on print. And um, because of Escape Pod, we can access all this wonderful short science fiction, which is really fantastic. And when you do special things like the um, Hugo nominees, it's like triply brilliant because the readings on Escape Pod were the only Hugos that I had any access to. So um, it was it was really really brilliant, and I love all the stories. I don't think there's been a single Escape Pod story in the last sixty plus however many flash fics that you've done that I haven't liked. Some of them have been especially special, but there, there haven't been any that have been especially hideous, which is uh, to your credit. If you want to get in touch with me at notdoneliving.net, that's not done living as in not finished having a life and um, spelt the obvious way. Yeah, I just want us to say a million thank yous because the skate pod means probably more to me than, than to most of your, your listeners who are, are able to pick up a book and read it. And I really f- have found that having this wonderful access to fantastic short science fiction is great. I grew up reading all my parents' Asimov and Heinlein books. And it's, a, it's really good not to have to give up new stuff or always pay hideous amounts for audio books. Anyway, I better shut up now because... My phone bill is going to explode, but g'day from Australia to your wife and the little one-year-old. I really, really adore hearing about how he's going and um, how he's, what he's been doing. So, um, enjoy. Thanks very much, Ricky. If I ever don't feel like sitting down on a Wednesday evening to put out the next episode, it's messages like this that get me into the chair. Her website, by the way, is notdoneliving.net. Escape Pod is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives license. Bain Books has for a while now put CD-ROMs in the backs of some of their books, with the full text of other books and permission to copy the CD. You can do the same with Escape Pod, and put us in the back of any book you please. Our music is by permission of Daikaiju, soothing, tranquil songs that remind you of sunsets and giant tentacles be taken by it at daikaiju.org. That was our show for this week. Our closing quotation comes once again from Abraham Lincoln, who said, In the end, it's not the years in your life that count, it's the life in your years. Thanks, as always, for being with us, and we'll see you next week. Have fun. This is Anna Ely for Escape Pod. Check us out at escapepod.org. The Kaiju Rocks! The Kaiju Rocks! The Kaiju Rocks! Thank you, Dan. You're welcome.